We are doing an overview of Exodus 7 through 10. Ordinarily, I would tell you, turn to such and such a passage. But that's not what we're going to do today. We're going to, if, uh, if you have a, a Bible in your lap or if you have a Bible on your phone, you're going to be uh, flipping pages or scrolling through on your phone. Just make sure if it's on your phone, you keep it to the Bible app and you're not scrolling through anything else. Um, but we're going to try to do uh, 7 through 10, which has uh, the bulk of the plagues, really runs up through uh, all of the plagues except for the last one, the, the 10th plague, the killing of the firstborn. Uh, we're going to do an overview of that. <clears throat> one of the things uh, that struck me, it was sort of odd, uh, there's been a buildup in the early chapters of Exodus to the exercise of God's power in these plagues that he brings on Egypt. But of course, more often than not, when the plagues are being talked about, God doesn't refer to the plagues that he's going to bring. That, that's not the language he uses. He usually uses the language or the terminology of, I will multiply my signs and wonders. So plagues are God's signs and wonders. And so in, in that context then, it, uh, it struck me this week, Jesus makes a very interesting statement in John chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. Makes a very interesting statement in John chapter 6 about uh, after he has fed the, the 5,000 miraculously, uh, people track him down overnight, traveling great distances to be able to, to find where Jesus is going. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, whatever else that, that may mean, or whatever else Jesus intends by that statement, which he goes on to, to expound in the following verses, at the very least it's an indication that it is possible, even with Jesus, to see signs and wonders, to see miracles, that God is doing and not to make the right connection with what those signs are pointing to. So for our passage today, for example, we're, we're talking about the plagues that come on Egypt. I think one of the ways that, there, that a danger exists for us to see the signs that God is multiplying in Exodus, and yet not to make the connection is when we, we see those signs as a way to fill our curiosity or our appetites for strange or unusual things. Almost, uh, any, anyone used to watch the X-Files when they were on? Okay. There was a show called The X-Files. The... <laughs> Where do you go from here? <laughs> there is something about the, the oddness to what goes on that draws you in so that much of what you begin to think about or discuss or the questions that you ask are all about the miracles, the signs, the, you know, what would it have been like to have frogs in your bedroom? Or what would have been like, what, you know, did, did they taste the water that had been turned to blood? Was it actually blood or was it just, you know, red, undrinkable water? You know, any number of these things. And in, in a sense, all of that is fine and good, but the, but the difficulty with that is, is if you become overly enamored with these miraculous signs, but you don't consider what it is that God is revealing through those signs, you can read a healthy chunk of Scripture and walk away oblivious to what it is that the Lord was revealing by the display of His power. There's just no way to get around for the fact that no matter how interesting or how curious we find the ten plagues, that over and over again, in a variety of ways, God makes it clear that whatever you want to say about these plagues, what these plagues are, are my judgment on the enemy of my people and those who are opposed to me. We are seeing in these signs and wonders the exercise of God's power to judge the enemy. But the other side to that, and what, what works 
hand in hand with that is that you can't even stop there. You have to take the next step and say, but the whole reason that he's exercising judgment on the Egyptians, on Pharaoh, on the enemy, is for the greater goal or the express purpose of saving his people. So when we look at the plagues, if you have the, the sermon outline or the, the, the bare structure of an outline that we provide for you, I'm going to say that when we look at the plagues in Exodus 7 through 10, that the big idea that we're to be taking away from this passage is that God saves his people by mighty acts of judgment. God saves his people by mighty acts of judgment. Now, let me go ahead and say up front, this, is, this message is not unique to Exodus. It is not unique to the plagues that are going on here in Exodus 7 through 10. This is, in many ways, what, what we'll see in some of these passages and verses. What we're reading about in Exodus is a dress rehearsal for the real ultimate deliverance and salvation that comes through the true and better servant, Jesus Christ, when his judgment is executed on the powers of this age to save and deliver his people. So as you're reading through Exodus 7 through 10, if you read ahead of time before you came in, or if you haven't and you go back home and you read during the afternoon, you ought to be thinking, what is it that God is revealing about himself, about his mind, about his purpose, about his ways, that we see being picked up by the work of Jesus Christ that makes all of this eye-catching action pale in comparison to the act that we see going on in the cross and the resurrection. God saves his people by mighty acts of judgment. There are three statements that we want to make, or three observations that we want to make. One is that this judgment that God executes is a judgment on the gods, small g, gods. This is a judgment on the gods. Number two, that this is also a judgment on those who would oppose God, that is, oppose the real God, capital G, God. And then number three, that even when God judges the false gods, even when he judges would-be gods, even in the act of judgment, there is a mixture of grace and mercy that is also at work. So God's judgment on the gods. I'm going to cheat just a little bit by going outside of 7 through 10 because the, the idea that God is bringing judgment on the so-called gods doesn't act, isn't actually stated explicitly in these chapters. It's stated after the fact. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. This is in the run-up to the last plague when, when the Lord is going to go through Egypt and he's going to execute all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians while sparing his firstborn Israel and their sons. And in Exodus 12, 12, this is what the Lord says, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This exact same statement is picked up later in Numbers. You don't need to turn there. In Numbers 33, 4, where there's a, a review of how the Lord worked for his people to bring them out of Egypt. And the statement is made that the people were walking out of Egypt while the Egyptians were burying their dead. Let me just read it to you. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them, Israel was walking out, the Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. Two different times we're told that what God is doing in the plagues is to be understood as an execution of judgment on the gods of Egypt. Why? Why is that important to say that God is judging 
the so-called gods of Egypt. One, it gets to the ultimate nature of God's salvation. When God comes to save his people, he does not enter in on a covert mission to try to sneak his people out of bondage and slavery under the cover of darkness. Rather, when God would save his people, he makes a direct frontal assault on the enemy to break them permanently so that his people can be free. The idea is, is that the Lord intends to make it plainly obvious to anyone who has eyes to see and would take even a moment's reflection on what's going on that the freedom that he wins for his people is a permanent and secure freedom. When he goes to take his people out, he first deals with the powers that are holding them there so that when those powers are broken and he says, now it's time for you to walk out, his people are going to walk out of their slavery, out of that old life, and they never have to turn and look over their shoulders to wonder are they going to come back and get us? They're done. They're broken. God has humiliated them through a dramatic display of his power, making himself known as the one true God in all the earth. So as you look at the plagues, it's all fine and good to look and to say, well, these plagues in certain respects seem to line up with certain Egyptian gods. So the Nile River they worship because of the fertility that it provided the land. Or the, the plague of darkness is a judgment on Ra, the sun god, right? He makes the sun go dark and shows that he's got power over that by killing Pharaoh's firstborn. He's executing judgment on Pharaoh himself who was considered to be divine, and God is showing that you're really not divine, you're not a God, right? All of those things. It, it's fine to see those connections, but always with the understanding that these are just not random events. This is not just for show. God is signifying something when he does this. Hold your place here in Exodus and go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, and then we're going to turn to Hebrews 2. Listen to what Paul says God did in the death of Christ on the cross for his people. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now hold your place here and go to Hebrews chapter 2. And look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless... Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Do you, do you hear, do you see the parallel between what God is doing in Exodus in executing judgment on the so-called gods with what God does in the work of the cross in Christ, that when Christ is on the cross, what looks like the defeat of God is actually the exact opposite. 
that Paul says in Colossians 2, when they stripped Christ down to nail him to the cross, what actually was happening there was that God in Christ was stripping the, the authorities and the powers of their influence and their sway over God's people, and he did it publicly for everyone to see. And the author of Hebrews picks up on that same line of thinking to say, in order for those who were in slavery, in fear of death, all of their lives, God came and He rendered powerless the one who was holding them in fear and slavery. Christian, do you consider that the dramatic display of God's power to bring His people to freedom so that they could walk out of their old life, never having to look over their shoulder again, is exactly what He has done for you in His power through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Are you living, do you know that that freedom is yours? The so-called gods of this age, the things that we're told that we have to bend the knee to, the things that we have to orient our lives around, money, sex, power, reputation, fame, any of those things that once held us in their grip, those things have been nullified and neutered in the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Those things do not own you anymore. When God comes to set His people free, He would have them as sons and daughters, not as slaves. And that's what you are if you are in Christ. As we'll see in the rest of Exodus, not only does God do a dramatic work in conquering the gods who keep His people oppressed and under and in chains to slavery, but there's also a work that God has to do on the people themselves. Right? We'll, we'll save that for later. There's almost a, a conquering that God has to do even of the hearts of His people. But, but in the run-up to that, let's also say that one of the things that God does in His victory at the cross is that He actually puts sin to death as well. He condemns, Paul says in Romans 8, He condemns sin in the flesh. Sin will not be master over you anymore. For you're not under law, you're under grace. Do you live in that freedom? Do you know the victory that is yours over sin, death, and the devil because of what God has done in Christ? Listen, the temptation for us in a therapeutic age where everyone needs to be affirmed in all of their brokenness and weakness. And, and let, me, let me pause right here. Please hear me on this. Do not interpret what I'm about to say here as being cold and callous to people who suffer or who struggle with any number of sins or weaknesses or anything like that. Okay? We of all people, we are redeemed sinners. We are people who, have been, who are broken that God is putting back together. We should be the most gracious, merciful, patient people the world has ever seen. However, there is a trend even in our churches today to buy into so much of the narrative and the philosophy of this world where everyone just needs a little bit of therapy, everyone just needs a little bit of compassion in order to help them deal peacefully or coexist peacefully with their sin or with the owners or the gods that keep them in bondage. And all of Scripture is saying, that's not who you are. You are not a slave. You are not held in the power of anything or person or principle or power other than the power of God Himself. And He is your Father, not your taskmaster.
you wrestle with losing your temper with the kids. You wrestle with worry. You wrestle with doubt. You wrestle all, okay, fine. We, we all do. But listen, don't buy into the lie that this is just the way it is and it's never going to change because when you do that, you deny the power of God that has set you free from your old way of life and all of those things that used to hold you down. We are no longer slaves. We're free. And our freedom was bought, was executed in the execution of God's own Son. That secured our freedom. God publicly displayed His life-giving, salvation-giving power over the gods of this world. He stripped them down and made them nothing. So that we, as sons and daughters, could go free. Number two. Not only does God execute His judgment on the so-called gods, He executes His judgment on would-be gods. Thinking particularly here of Pharaoh. So turn to Exodus chapter 9. There are several statements that we could pull from or that we could look at. This is, this is just one. Exodus chapter 9, look at verse 14. Verses 14 through 17. The Lord says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you. He's addressing Pharaoh here. I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Even after all of these displays of my power, even after your own magicians, your own advisors have said, this is the finger of God, even so, Exodus 9, 17, you, Pharaoh, still exalt yourself. We said last week in the opening paragraph of Exodus 7 that when God says to Pharaoh, I make you God to Pharaoh, that one of the implications of that statement was that Pharaoh was not being confronted by Moses so much as he was being confronted by God. Pharaoh's rejection of Moses, Pharaoh's rejection of Moses' message was a rejection of God and God's Word. Pharaoh is the one who has said, who is the Lord? I don't know him. And besides, I'm not going to do what he says. I'm not going to let the people go. Now, listen very carefully, or I should say, let's read very carefully. Here's, here's one of the catches that comes, or one of the surprises that comes in the plague narratives as God is doing battle, confronting Pharaoh himself to show him that he is God and that Pharaoh is not. We tend to think that self-exaltation or opposition to God always looks and sounds the same. It's brash, it's bold, it's defiant. 
Skip with me just a little bit further in chapter 9 and look at verses 27 through 30. This is when God sends hail to destroy the land, the crops and everything like that. Listen to what Pharaoh says in response to that display of God's power. Exodus 9, 27, Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Pause right there. Okay, Moses, cue up the organ music. You've won a convert. Listen to what he just said. He's admitted the fact that he's in the wrong. That God is right. So much for the, for the so-called or the man-made, self-made God. He's let all of that go. He's seen the light. Verse 28, he continues, Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And then Moses says this, But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Lighten up, Moses! This man has turned. He's coming. What are you doing pushing him away? Moses says, I hear what you're saying, but that's not really where your heart and mind is. You still have not bent the knee and acknowledged that God is God. And so we skip down a little bit further, and what do we find in verse 34? Exodus 9, 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Christians, listen very carefully to what the Scriptures are speaking here. Wannabe gods who want to rule their own life, who would even defy or deny the right claim that God has over them as their Creator and King, some of those wannabe self-made gods will present themselves in all of their so-called glory, with all the boldness and the brashness that you would expect. Other wannabe gods will actually make it sound as if they are submitting to God and are acknowledging His truth, all the while they are clinging, they have tied themselves to the throne in their own heart. They are not going to give God a seat on His throne, not in their life. So Pharaoh is perfectly happy to have God intervene to save him and his people from the misery of the consequences of their sin. He's perfectly fine with that. What Pharaoh will not have, however, he will take God as the intervener, as the healer, as the Savior. He will not take God as Lord and King. This is not unique to Pharaoh. This is the human condition. This is the way it was for us, for you and me, every single person in this room, were it not for the fact that God removed our hardened, calcified, petrified heart and replaced it with a heart of flesh. 
Listen, just, just to see, to come full circle, hold your place here. Go to Revelation chapter 16. It is eerie, the similarities that you see in Revelation, in this little passage here, with what we're seeing of Pharaoh during the plagues. Revelation chapter 16, start with me at verse 9. God is pouring out His judgments on the earth, which already sounds very similar to what God is doing in Egypt, right? He's pouring out His judgments. Revelation 69, men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give Him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. Doesn't that sound like one of the plagues also? The land is turned to darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. No matter how distasteful or how unsettling it may be, the truth of the matter is that the nature of the heart that is revealed in the person of Pharaoh is emblematic of the nature of the human heart apart from Christ. We are born into this world wanting to be our own gods. And we will try to cling to that position and that authority in any way we can and say whatever it takes just so long as I get to stay in control. Listen to this great quote. I have no idea who this guy is. I found it in one of, the, one of my commentaries, and it smacked me upside the face. And so now I'm about to smack you upside the face with it. Moshe Greenberg have no idea who he is. Listen to what he says about what we're seeing with Pharaoh here. In this dramatic evolution of Pharaoh's reactions, there is a consistent principle, namely the maintenance of his sovereignty. That is the crux of the matter. That is what cannot coexist with God's authority. Under pressure, human authority will show flexibility and accommodation even reversing itself, first by crying for help, then by confessing guilt and making concessions. But after all its retreats, it clings to its last redoubt, a core of self-assertiveness and independence, to surrender which would mean the end of its claim to ultimate self-sufficient power. Here it resists, careless of the cost, unto death. That was you. That was me. Until. Until. God took out that Pharaoh-like heart and gave us hearts to acknowledge Him as Savior and Lord. Christians, when you see people come into the church, by all means, welcome them, encourage them. When you see people or when you hear people profess that Jesus is Lord, affirm that statement. But do not fall prey to the notion that a mere profession is is the only sign of what it means to truly be one of God's children. John will say in the New Testament in 1 John, if we say that we have come to know God, and by that, know Him personally, if we say that we have come to know God and do not keep His commandments, we lie and the truth is not in us. You cannot have God, you cannot have Christ as Savior and not have Him as King. And let me just say, if there is anyone here 
who has been resisting that submission to the Lordship of Christ because of your fear or your fierce determination to cling to your own authority, you have no idea how good of a king he is. You will find more freedom. You will find more joy. You will find contentment and rest in saying, He is God and I am not. Christians, where do you go? What does your heart do after you are done crying out for relief from the pressures of this life, from the consequences of your sin? When God comes, when He intervenes, when He heals, when He raises up, when He restores, where does your heart go? Does your heart imitate the path and the pattern of Pharaoh, where once the pressure is off, you breathe a sigh of relief and say, now I can get back to what I've been wanting to do? Or, once the pressure is off, do you find that your heart is drawn even more to the power of a good and gentle God who would actually give the time of day to pay attention to what your needs and your struggles are? We need not just mere lip service, we need to be changed from the inside out. We have to be born again. And the glory of the gospel is this, that God says that all of those who are in rebellion against me, rather than having my judgment fall on them, I will cause it to fall on my own son so that these one-time former rebels can be adopted into my family as sons and daughters. For those who do not take that gracious offer of mercy, know this, that Christ himself says that there is both a judgment that is executed at the event of the cross and there is a judgment to come. If you take the judgment that fell on Christ for yourself, you need not fear the judgment that's still ahead. But if you continue to resist him and deny his rule and reign over your life, if you do not find new birth and adoption into his family, know that the only thing that you can anticipate and bank on is judgment at the end of the day. And that does not need to be your fate. Number three, even in the mix of judgment on the gods, on the wannabe gods, on the resistors, on the rebels, even with the exercise of God's power in judgment, there is still even in the judgment, there is mercy and grace. We observed last week that there are two identical statements that occur in chapter 6 and in chapter 7. One is said about the Israelites and the other is said about the Egyptians. In chapter 6, when the Lord is telling Moses that the, my people will know me now as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who actively redeems his people, he says, and they will know that I am the Lord. And then in chapter 7, when he says that he's going to pour out and multiply his signs and wonders on Egypt, he says, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. What is God doing when he exercises his power in judgment against Pharaoh and against Egypt? Does God hit the pause button and say, wait just a second, I need to flip off the mercy switch of my nature and character. I've got to disconnect the, the love breaker, and I've got to go full scale into judgment vengeful mode. It's time to smite some people. Is that what God does? 
Or is God always, always, always everything that He is without division and separation? In other words, is it possible that even when God judges, He judges with goodness? Isn't it possible that when, ju- when God judges, He judges with and in love? Exodus says, for the sake of time, let me, sum, let me sum this up or make this short. Exodus says that at one point in chapter 9, turn there, I, time, okay, turn, turn to the scriptures. Exodus 9, verse 20. God has warned Pharaoh and the Egyptians about the coming hail, the, the plague of, of hailstones. And look at this interesting statement in Exodus 9, 20 and 21. Moses says, if you stay out in the field, anything out there that's living is going to die. Exodus 9, 20. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Did you you hear that? At a certain point, because God is drawing his powerful display of judgment out to make himself known... In those acts of judgment that reveal the nature and the power of God, there are some people who see that act of judgment and say, I might want to pay attention to this. By the way, spoiler alert, Israel will end up leaving Egypt with Egyptians following along with them. How does that happen? It happens when God displays His power to redeem through mighty acts of judgment and allows those people who are undeserving to turn and repent and to find grace instead of judgment. This is what God has done supremely in the judgment that He executed on His Son at the cross in the New Testament. There are two men in the Gospel accounts, one who is being hung, crucified, right next to Jesus, who as he sees Jesus suffering and the way that he is conducting himself through this judgment that's being poured out on him, comes to faith in Christ as he is in the process of dying. If he had never seen the judgment of God falling on the Son in the crucifixion, the odds are pretty good he never would have ended up in paradise. But because God puts on the display of his judgment on the gods, on sin, on death itself, in plain view, anyone who sees that and who takes it to heart can turn and respond and find blessing instead of judgment. And then once Jesus draws his last breath and gives his spirit over to his father, there is a Roman soldier standing at the foot of the cross. And he says, not an Israelite, not a religious leader, this hardened, Gentile, pagan, idolatrous man watches and sees the finality of God's judgment on his son, and he concludes... Truly, this man was the Son of God. There is no God out there. There is no person out there who is able to simultaneously destroy and judge sin and at the same time welcome sinners home. And God has put His judgment of Christ in full view, not in darkness, not under cover of night, but in the middle of the day 
on a hill so that all could see, so that anyone who would turn and recognize that this is the very finger of God condemning sin in this man could turn and find life instead of death. This is eternal life, Jesus says in John 17, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And one of the ways that God has made himself known is by judging the enemies of his people and sin itself so that we could know him as our good and faithful king who delivers us from the powers of this age. Bow with me in prayer. Father, in a more significant and more profound way, we lived in chains to sin and to fear and to death. We were enslaved by our own lust. The things that we thought perhaps would bring us freedom only led to more and more death and a more certain judgment. But in your kindness and mercy, you sent your Son the true and better servant, Jesus Christ, not into Egypt, but into the world, to conquer the enemy of your people and to bring them out into glorious freedom. Father, we ask that as we continue to walk in this freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us the ability to see more clearly what it is that you have done in the death, resurrection, and ascension of your Son. That we would come to know by experience what it is that we have in the indwelling presence and power of your Holy Spirit. And that we would know that no matter what is in our past, no matter what formerly held us, no matter what even pulls or claws at us in, the, in this present time, that we have been set free. And that for any son or daughter of God who has been set free by Christ, we are free indeed. We praise you and thank you that you have given to us a life that we could never earn or secure for ourselves. Help us to praise you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet as we continue to praise his name. Oh
for being here today in God's presence. And we do want to close with a doxology. So would you join me in song? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless.